Sunday, September 12th, and you're listening to Peanuts and Popcorn. P&P is a spontaneous podcast between two old friends on baseball and motion pictures. I'm Tom Hockney. And I'm Leo Fontana. This week on Peanuts and Popcorn, the 20, on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, we'll discuss how baseball helped bring us all back to a sense of normalcy. The Hall of Fame class from 2020 finally gets their induction over a year later. The New York Yankees are circling the drain, and Yadier Molina will get a farewell tour in 2022. Johnny Bench has COVID, but he is recovering, while Trevor Bauer will not be back this season. We'll have Cubs, White Sox, and our popcorn discussion is on the Francois Truffaut film, The 400 Blows. Tommy, how are you doing? I'm, I'm doing well. I'm, I'm, I, I checked the obituaries this morning and my name was not on the list. So. That's right. That's right. I, a friend of mine's father always used to say that, you know, I get up in the morning, the first thing I read are the obituaries. And if I see my name, I'm going to go back to bed. Yeah. <laughs> well, something interesting happened in the Hockney House yesterday. So I have to tell you, I'm a very fastidious person when it comes to my eyeglass wear. So, for example, it's not uncommon that I will clean my glasses five to 10 times a day, uh, both my sunglasses and my regular glasses. If there is a speck on my lens, I have to clean. So smudge. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so it's just soap and water. And I use an old white t-shirt all week long and then I throw it in the wash and I use it to dry it. And it gives me a perfect uh, thing. So the reason why I tell you this is because um, yesterday morning uh, I decided I was going to go for a walk. Uh, on the, you know, the whole September 11th thing. I'm just going to go for a walk and just kind of get clear my thoughts. And so I had to clean my my sunglasses before I went for my little walk. I did that. I'm on my walk and I get a a frantic text from my wife saying, come home now. And so I was already at the park, which is about a mile away. I kind of hightailed it back home. Along the way, my mind is going crazy. What, what oh, yeah. could this be? Is someone yeah. di- someone dead? I mean, this is just bad. I get in the house and she almost like yanked me by the collar down into our basement. And there was standing water underneath my bathroom. I have a, by the way, I have a bathroom. She has a bathroom and I'm not allowed into her bathroom. She's got 3000 creams. I don't even know what the hell's going on in there. Mine's basically looks like a latrine. No. Uh, well, apparently I forgot to turn the water off when I washed my glasses and it overflowed the sink and it went through the floors. And then I had to spend the next basically three hours cleaning up after that and drying it out. And it just was, and, you know, getting the, the stink eye from, from the, uh, my bitter half, uh, most of the day until, until she felt that my cleaning was up to her, uh, expectations. And so, um, my point is whenever you get that come home now text, uh, it's never good. No, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> Uh, you know, I actually, the, the most interesting thing that happened to me this week was I bought a new pickleball paddle. Oh boy. One very high end one. This one has uh, the paddle has a very rough surface, which is supposed to increase the spin you put on the ball. I tried it out on Friday. It absolutely does. I was spinning the ball like crazy, <coughs> really mystifying my opponents. So yeah. I'm looking forward to that. So I guess the question is, how do you get that pass through purchasing at home that you want to buy a high end pickleball? This is I was socking away my money. I socked away cash, <laughs> built it up over time, got the cash ready, and bought it, and it was awesome. And my wife doesn't know about it. So yet. Um, so um, this week, um, 
it, it, it just marked the somber anniversary of September 11th. Um, and, uh, you know, I have, I have personally, I knew somebody that died from one of the planes. I mean, I, I, I have to tell you, I, I will, when I exit this planet, I will look at my life in two parts, my life before September 11th and my life after September 11th. Yeah. And I will tell you that I miss the 20th century like you, like there's no business for, for many reasons, for my youth, for, for my friendships that I had for, for just, the, just the way life was the communal way that we, you know, us Chicagoans in the nineties were kind of all rowing, you know, in the same direction at the same velocity. And that kind of all was shattered uh, on September 11th. And so um, up to that point, um, about 98% of my flying career had been completed. I, I, I flew 800,000 miles. And I would say about 750,000 of those miles were prior to September 11th. Thank God. Because if I was a road warrior post-September 11th with all the uh, restrictions, it would have made me go crazy because I just, I, I and it's for no reason that I experienced something different. If I had nothing to reference um, life after September 11th, it would be it would be normal to me, but I did, and that's the problem. And so that and the fact that I think that um, I suffered from some uh, PTSD or whatever, um, uh, PSTD or whatever they call that, um, it, and like a lot of Americans did um, on that day, and, and and it's hard for me to watch it, and it makes me think of like some of the World War II veterans that I used to talk to in the late '90s about their experiences of World War II. They didn't really want to talk about it. They're like, yeah, they don't want to. They don't want to bring up those memories. They, and so. I kind of have that feeling too, because my wife's like, hey, they're showing this clip that we've never seen before. And I'm like, I don't want to see. It. I, I, I get it. It, it. And it had to do with people hanging. They had uh, helicopter footage of one of the towers where people were hanging out the windows. I'm like, I, I don't want to see that. So th that. These people perished. I don't want to see this. And so every God. year, every year, I, I if I if I ran the world, Leo, I, I, there's a couple of things that I would do right away. One, I would get rid of the DH, obviously. But number two, you know, <laughs> I, right? I mean, I, I I I would take September 11th out of the calendar. There would be no September 11th. That's that's how crazy it makes me. And so every year, I dread it coming up. And I, and I can't wait till it's over. And thank God we're at September 12th today. But for me personally, September 11th was a defining moment in my life. For like a lot of people, but but I've, I've never gotten over it. Yeah, no, I, and, and it's, it, I, I can't imagine getting, we'll ever get over it. Those of us who were, you know, aware of all the things that were happening. And, and the only thing that I really can, well, the one thing that really sticks out about that day is as I'm watching these events, I'm thinking, nothing will ever be the same again. You know what I mean? And, and, and it wasn't, we were 20 years recovering from this as we, as we try to, you know, as we try to pull out of Afghanistan. I mean, we were right. fighting this war in Afghanistan and fighting wars in Iraq, you know, all because of what had happened that day. And, uh, you know, I'm not crazy about a lot of the decisions that were made uh, in terms of going after these terrorists and the way that we did it. And I'm talking about Bush. Yeah, I'm right. talking about Obama. Every, everybody, right. Everybody. They yeah. all made some terrible decisions. Yeah. And uh, we're still paying for it today, 20 years later. We're still feeling the effects. I do, um, you know, I'm a teacher and I do a unit on uh, 
on 9-11. And um, I do two classes where I do the unit. And the first time, the first one, I was emotionally affected. Mm-hmm. I really was. I, I'm just watching these events again and seeing these things happen and hearing these people talk about it. And it just was almost more than I could bear. You know, right. I kind of stop and kind of collect myself. My students were really surprised. Yeah, you know, you're right. I, I think the most, the, the biggest thing that you said is so true. Life would never be the same. And it just made me think, you know, I remember not shortly thereafter, Bill Maher was fired from his show, yeah. uh, Politically Incorrect, because he made the bold statement that he thought that these hijackers had courage to do what they did to fly into those buildings. And it made me start to think, why did this happen? Why did this happen to us? And it drew me back to some days back in my late 80s and early 90s where I used to take cabs around town. And quite honestly, I was kind of a cad as far as being obnoxious to some of the cab drivers. Um, and one cab driver said something to me that was remain with me the rest of my days. He said, someday you Americans will see what what us Muslims have had to go through with you people over the years. And I thought, what the hell are you talking about? And it actually happened. And I was like, whoa. Um, And so ever since then, it's just, there's so many things going on, so many things that you have to deal with in regards to this subject. But I'm okay if I never have to think about it again. Unfortunately, we we all will. We were sitting at home and we had gotten a phone call that the New York Mets had dropped off some tickets at the firehouse where my father had worked at 288. So me, my mom, my brothers went to the game that night. You know, it was 10 days removed from, you know, the biggest tragedy in the last, you know, 50 years in this country. To play in New York was a big question. Should we do it? You didn't know what was going to happen at any point in time, both in and out of the stadium. It was an unbelievable, intense environment. And when we came together and saw a full house, it it was just inevitable that something really special was happening. You know, first pitch kind of being like part of normalcy is going to be back for a little while. Great game. Uh, 2-1, I believe, late in the game. Bottom of the eighth inning, Ricardo Alfonso drew a walk. Piazza came up. But when he came up to bat, like so many at-bats in the past, you hoped that this was going to be the turning point of the game. Lopez wants it away. It seemed like time just stopped right there and uh, hits a ball that may not have landed yet. And it's hit deep to left center. Andrew Jones on the run. This one has a chance. Home run. Mike Piazza and the Mets lead 3-2. to That home run was really a sign of everything is going to be normal again. And- our, our, uh, open up the uh, bag of uh, peanuts here. Um, Baseball also was impacted by September 11th. Was they stopped? They had to stop the season. I think there was a week's worth of games that just weren't played. You know, and uh, I mean, it was a really, really hard time. How could anybody think about watching a sporting event? You know what I mean? And 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 it just well, there was other issues. There was a ground uh, uh, airline ground thing that was in I think until Saturday or Sunday of that week. Because I know because my flight was canceled. I had a flight and I I went out on on that following Sunday. And it believe you me, I've I've written about it. It's yeah, that's a whole separate subject. But everybody at the time were stuck wherever they were. Every plane that was diverted into Canada, some of those people were still in Canada at that point. So it was a week, I think almost a week where just there was no air travel at all and that has never ever happened no before or since 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 airlines were you know 
air uh, travel was invented. And so but, but the Yankees and the, and the Mets um, played uh, a really big, uh, an important role um, in kind of bringing America back. I thought it was a, and a, New York back and bringing New York and because and, New York in particular was was obviously completely rewritten as a right. city because of this, you know. The, but do, you rem- do you remember watching baseball at that time? Because I do, because it was kind of important to, for a diversionary purpose that we right. look at something different. I thought the entertainers in the country did a tremendous job. And I think that the athletes did as well to try to take our collective minds off of this, this horror. And, and, and it all goes through to how the Yankees, you know, they were, they had a great team that year They made the playoffs, obviously they win their division. They go all the way to the world series, a wonderful world series played in seven games finally won by the Diamondbacks. But, um, you know, just seeing the Yankees in the World Series helps unify the city of New York. And I also think just having that World Series really galvanized the country. Now, right. it didn't last for very long. Right. But, but there were some very, very, I think, positive things that kind of came out of it. Things that I haven't seen for a long time. Correct. And, and, and before that, really, and then since then, it, it, you know, we're such a divided nation now that I think we're perilously close to a, to an actual civil war at some point. If certain things were to happen, I think yeah. it would be. And first of all, I think we've been in an intellectual civil war for over five years. This has been going on for a long time. But for one brief shining moment, when when George Bush stood amongst that rubble and said, you know, very soon they're all going to hear about us. And, and unfortunately, it didn't all turn out as we planned. But I think in earnest, George Bush did what he thought was best. And I, you know, at, yeah, at, one, I, point, yeah, I mean, at one point, George Bush had a 75% approval rating. You know, George Bush basically had America galvanized in what we had to do. Albeit, I do believe that it was absolutely dripping in racism and, and, and you know, anti-Muslim sentiment. Um, It's it's a very complicated situation, but I just thought the Yankees particularly, um, uh, you know, they were so grief stricken about what happened. What happened to the New York Fire Department? I don't think people really can get their heads around exactly what happened. If you stop to think, start to think about it, it'll make you it'll make you weep. I mean, it's just it's it's horrific. While they while people were running down the stairs, they were running up the stairs. And and um, so I just thought the Yankees you know, did a really good job and Joe Torrey specifically of, of just kind of somberly um, because even the America's comedians, if you think about it, they didn't know what to do back at the time. How could you, how could you tell jokes? No, you, well, you could, you could, except for Gilbert Gottfried, Gilbert Gottfried at that roast about two weeks after September 11th, when he told the aristocrats joke when he wasn't supposed to is one of the greatest comedy moments of all time. And the reason is, is because we were paralyzed, like intellectually. And he's just like, you know what, here, I'm turning my hat backwards. We're going to make, we're going to do something funny here. And that, so there was all these little things that occurred to try to help us recover from this. But first and foremost, I thought the Yankees were as, as usual at the head of uh, baseball and and how they handled and and dealt with it. You know, you say that uh, there's your life before, uh, 2000 or 9-11 and after 9-11, we could also look at it like before COVID and after COVID. Yeah, right. That's And, and COVID had a devastating effect on the Hall of Fame inductions because yep. in 2020, 
the Hall of Fame inductions of Derek Jeter, Larry Walker, Ted Simmons, Marvin, and Marvin Miller was basically delayed for a year, more right. than a year. And right. they're finally going to be inducted this weekend. Yeah. And I think it's great. Um, you know, I you was, know what I didn't find out, Leo? They've actually already been inducted. What happens are, today? Okay. What what happens today is ceremonial. But oh, anyways, let's see. it's it's the speeches. And yes, some, that's right. Um, okay, all right. So their plaques were already in. That's right. Visited them, right. you could have seen them. All right. That's right. All right. But um, but what it did is it caused me to kind of look, as I'm sure it did for you, at the careers of these men. Yeah. And uh, we'll begin with Derek Jeter. And yeah. you know, you, you sent me that article from the New York Times. And the thing that stood out is he could have been a Cincinnati Red. He could have been a Cincinnati Red. Instead, those idiots drafted Shad Motola, who was a complete washout. That's the reason why. That's the reason why I added that article. That's is for, for because of the Reds and and the Reds don't. The Reds have done a really good job of kind of sweeping that under the rug yeah. because that's that's their Lou Brock. That's yeah. their Lou Brock. Yeah. Really. <laughs> well, I mean, the Reds also had a terrible trade early when they traded Frank Robinson for Milton. Oh, yeah. They're, well, actually. But, but, so they, they already have one devastatingly embarrassing yeah. trade. They traded but, an MVP. Yeah, they traded an MVP. Exactly. But but this time, I mean, this time, you know, can you imagine if they'd had Barry Larkin and Derek Jeter? Well, right. That's the whole point. That would have yeah. been the greatest middle maybe in, in baseball history. I mean, because you know? Larkin would have stayed at shortstop. Yeah. And Jeter probably would have played second or second. Or, or vice versa. It doesn't matter. It, it, doesn't, matter. it, it doesn't matter. Because if, if anything that Jeter was ever criticized was, sometimes his defense was not. Yeah, it wasn't uh, was, great. Yeah. It was not like Barry Larkin. Let's put it that way. Larkin was a much better glove man than, than uh, Jeter. However, Jeter checks all the other boxes. And the other thing, too, about Jeter, interesting, is, you know, he had a lot of hits. I don't think people quite understand. People are like, oh, you know – because it, it's true, like 90% of his hits were singles. That's the one. If you, there's a slam against Jeter, is that doesn't have a lot of power. Yeah. He does it. However, the keystone, the key moments of his career were all home runs. His 3,000th hit was a home run. And so, it, you know, Jeter just it, is an all time great, an all time Yankee. I don't think there's any dispute about that. I think where you start to get into potentially some disputes is with, you know, maybe Simmons and Walker, even though Walker, I think makes a much stronger case. Um, Walker, I was looking at Walker's numbers and I got to tell you, he was better than I thought. Um, you know, he, and again, he, he gets again, criticism for playing half of his games at Coors Field, but. You still got to hit the ball, right? I mean, I, I think. to hit the ball and, and he was, he was actually really good on the road too. He was yeah. not a bad player. You know, so he had a, I think, a very interesting career. His his war career war is, I think, respectable for a Hall of Fame. Oh no, it's if seventy. If you're post over seventy, yeah, you, you need to be in the Hall. And, and so I thought it was interesting in the article these twenty one reasons why. Yeah, and yeah. Lou Whitaker with his seventy five WAR and his sixteen defensive win above replacement, which is unbelievable compared to the right fielders that are in the Hall. Um, so many of the right fielders. It, without K-Line, K-Line and Clemente were at the top. It wasn't Ruth, by the way. Ruth was a minus number um, defensively. Um, but it just makes me think, you know, Jesus, Lou, what, what are they going to put this guy what, in? I'm, I'm never going to stop talking about it. <laughs> what does he need? Is he still with us? Lou, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And that's the idea that you even say that is part of the problem. And this falls on Whitaker's shoulders. He did not do, and he has not done, 
Uh, he's a very religious and he doesn't believe in, the, in this kind of stuff. This is her, his lack of grandstanding. Right. Which he's you and I would have done. All her, gonna, yeah, yeah. And that's, her, that's hurting him. That being said, you know, I still think Marvin Miller is a great selection, but how do you put Miller in without putting Kurt Flood in? We, we talked about this last week, yeah. but, but Miller certainly is deserving as he presided over the, the most tumultuous um, labor time in baseball history. Even to this day, there's repercussions from uh, Marvin Miller. So congratulations to all of them. And you're absolutely right. Um, COVID is, it was, I, by the way, I, I was reading some stats and something interesting came up. I was reading about Greg Maddox. He pitched to 20,421 batters and 133 of those batters went to a three and oh count. Come on. Come on. Wow. Yeah. I was like, Oh my God, that's unbelievable. Cause people are like, why do you love Maddox so much? And so I kind of went down this rabbit hole and I was like, wow, I cannot believe that only oh. 133 hitters ever went to three and oh on him well, out of 20,000 batters uh, at bats. The thing about Maddox that you mentioned that, uh, you know, is that he never beats himself and that's why he was so great. That was one of the, one of the aspects of his greatness as a pitcher. He didn't, walk hitters you know he he, threw he, he was playing a different game mentally and they say that same thing about larry walker larry walker's approach to the game was nobody else was doing what he was doing yeah. you know his best friend is cam neely who's a hall of fame national league hockey player they grew up right. on the same street and they said even when he was a little kid he, he was looking at events and sporting events different than the way that other kids did and that really served him well in his uh illustrious sort of hall of fame majorly career in game alert. correct 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 and there so. are very few players who have that kind and maddox is one walker is one i think that's really exciting uh, you know i think hendrix on the cubs kind of does this too but anyways uh there's very few guys that that have that analytical approach um but anyways congratulations to all those guys now we were talking about the yankees and how they helped bring us all back after 2000 uh, after 9 11 yeah, but this year's Yankees in 2021, man, they're circling the drain. They, they, really, they, they lost. They got swept by Toronto, who, by the way, just they're a buzzsaw as far as their lineup. Right. You know, they just beat the crap out of the Yankees. But then the Yankees go to uh, then they play the subway series in New York. And there was this just really bizarre, you know, play on the base paths or whatever, where 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 the Mets hitter with the bases loaded bunts for a base hit yeah on the, you know past the pitcher towards second and just the yankees looked awful they know? did they, they really did it reminded me a little bit of the pirates that when they let Baez, yeah you know basically hit well, yeah. inside the infield home run almost yeah. uh but so you know I don't feel sorry for the Yankees. I will tell you that right now. I, we, we talked about this at the beginning of the season. We've talked about this in previous seasons. If you look at what how the Yankees have been making their teams for the last five years, they put a disproportionate amount of focus on big, stodgy DH-like hitters, in my yeah. opinion. They have way yeah. too many DH-type guys on their team and not enough, you know, small, Ozzie Smith type of physical um, defensive players on their team. So that so they're, they're like a beer league softball team. 
That's what they are. That's exactly what they are. And if you know anything about a beer league softball team, they can be beat. You you beat them at their own game. And I think a lot of teams, and we talked about the Blue Jays, once they they actually went home to play in front of Toronto fans, that I thought that was going to give them a little boost. It has. I still think they're going to struggle to make the playoffs because there's just too many teams this year that are just a few games ahead of them. They're, they, they need to have a torrid finish. It could happen, uh, but it, but you're right. The Yankees are just, they're a mess to me. What, yeah. what, what their priorities are as far as acquiring players are not what mine would be if I was, a, if I was the running the team. And I'm not even a professional. These guys get paid to do it, and I can tell you, okay, wait a minute, that was a bad decision. That was a bad decision. Why did you go do this? And it just, it all adds up to this point in the season where – Real teams that have complete teams that have defense and hitting and pitching will always beat this Yankees team. They're never going to get out of this rut until they tear down this team, I think. I mean, they're, they're, you watch the Yankees, you look at them as a team, and they're impressive. They're all big, yes, yes, strong. Right, and, right. I mean, and I wouldn't want to fight them. No, right. But, right, right. But, uh, but as far as, you know, they're intimidating in that regard. But once you kind of get past that and realize that they're slow afoot, and they're kind of robotic in their movements and that they can be beaten by a team that knows how to play. So, you know, but uh, now did you see uh, that Yadier Molina of the right. St. Louis Cardinals, their, their longtime catcher, their catcher emeritus, I like to say. That's right. He's going to, he signed an extension for 2022 and he announced that it's going to be his last year. So he's going to get a farewell tour. That's the way it's supposed to be, Leo. That's the way it should work. For a guy like him, he absolutely does. I think it's for, for you know who should read this? Pujols, Cabrera. You guys need to read. That's the way to go out is announce your retirement. I'm sorry. This oh. business that you have to be cut is just unbecoming for someone that's as great as Pujols and Cabby. Not that Cabby will be cut, but who knows? It could happen at some point. But But you're right. I think Molina's, while I've disliked him, and I always, you know, I'm like, what, you know, I've never liked you because you're a Cardinal. Yeah. However, I respect you enormously, and you are a Hall of Famer. Yes. Your offensive stats don't add up to anything. We talked about this two weeks ago with a freehand. In the catcher position, Molina's got to go in. He's <laughs> now he he's now in the argument for greatest catcher of all time. He is in the argument. Well, know? that's that's tough. We're going to talk about the greatest catcher of all time here in a second. That that's that's tough, tough, tough one. But um, only because the uh, for me for Molina, there's a weakness was you're on the offensive side of the ball. Your defense is the as good as anybody, as good as Pudge Rodriguez, you know, in in his early days. So as far as handling pitching staffs, I, I will say this about Molina's offense: he's not a great offensive player, but he is consistently above average. You know what I mean? He's he he he's the thinking man's hitter. He he's very very good at figuring out what the pitcher is going to throw and then being ready for it. You know, I remember an at bat he had against John Lester, you know, back when the Cubs were good and, and it was just like these two old lions, you know, playing this chess match. And finally, you know, Molina baited him into throwing a fastball inside, which he hit for a home run. And it was just, it was amazing that he was able to kind of work the at bat until and force Lester into situation, into a situation where he had to throw that pitch in that location. And he was, and he crushed it. To me, he was always an accidental hitter. Um, and, and like, if you, you in most hitters are judged with what they do in a week. If you do, if you look at his stats over two weeks, it's what a hitter should do in a week. Like, like if you wait long enough, he's going to hit that home run. He's going to, but, but to me, it was all about his defense and, and further it, 
the article really talks about something that many people don't talk about, and that is that the physical pain that a catcher, a veteran catcher, lives yeah. with, not just now, what, Molina will be in pain the rest of his life for the for the beating that he has taken as being a catcher. And they talk about the fact that, you know, uh, hitters will show up at the ballpark at six o'clock in the morning to start practicing. And there's Molina. He's already there. He's yeah, already he's taking there. the swings. And, and, and you can see that he's in physical pain, but he says he completely blocks it out of his mind. That's one tough, tough guy, man. And um, like I said, he he's going to the hall. There's no question in my mind. You know, we speaking of hall of fame catchers, Johnny bench. Yeah. Um, he, he has, has, he's got COVID. And, and I thought, of course, Johnny Bench has it because he could catch anything. Uh, you know, you're talking about a guy who could fit 12 baseballs in both of his hands. I mean, yeah, right, it, right. So, yeah. um, but I think the scary part for us vaccinated people is he's fully vaccinated. Yeah, so, he's fully vaccinated. He had mild symptoms. Right. So he's okay. And, and, and believe me, I don't think I could have handled another Hall of Fame baseball player passing away. You know, we just lost too many over the last year. But, um, but I'm glad he's okay. You know, uh, I think his son reported to everybody that uh, that the symptoms were mild and that he's recovering. And the only reason the only reason why we know about this in the HIPAA world that we live in is because he's missing the Hall of Fame ceremonies. Right. And a guy like Johnny Bench doesn't miss the Hall of Fame when you're arguably the best at your position. Like the same thing I would think of if, if Ozzie Smith uh, couldn't make the hall. It, they this would be public knowledge too. But uh, you know, speaking of Hall of Famers, Jack Morris. Yeah. Um, and and by the way, I spell his name J A C K K K. Jack Morris is is returning to the broadcast booth after taking sensitivity training. I presume. I, I I know how it is in corporate America, so I know how frustrated he must have been going through those diversity classes because I'll bet you it goes against everything he ever uh, knew as a child. Racism, as we saw some examples of this again this week, um, is taught by parents. I mean, this is something that, you know, it, it's it, a, a baby is not born into this world hating. It's just, it's just, that's not the way they're taught to hate. They're, they're right. either taught to hate by their parents or their friends or whatever the people right. that know it's instilled within them. It is. I, I hope Morris um, has learned a lesson. However, when it came time, when it comes time to do his annual performance review, I know this will be part of it, but I think the biggest thing that's going to be part of it is that, you know what, Jack, you're just not very good at this. You were a great pitcher, a good, albeit maybe great pitcher, certainly a great big stage pitcher, but you're not a very good announcer. And I think that maybe that will create a little spotlight on that uh, moving forward. And also baseball, just because you were a Hall of Famer doesn't mean you are an announcer. You're, you're just, it, it just kind of makes no, me crazy. Right. And, and, and it does take a certain level of, of uh, you have to develop your skills as a broadcaster. And when these former players get in the booth, you know what I mean? They have to learn how to be a broadcaster. Now they're an analyst. You know, they have to also, you know, they're, they're all these skills that they kind of have to develop. And you see guys like Jim Deshays who are really, really good at it. You know, That's and, right. you know yeah. Ron Coomer is also really good at it. And, and, but this doesn't happen overnight. And sometimes I think there's an arrogance that accompanies a hall of fame ball player. That's right. That sort of uh, superimposes that over the need to be a quality broadcaster. And that's why maybe you're better off when you're selecting 
a play-by-play or not a play-by, but a color man that you should get somebody maybe who wasn't as prominent a player like Morris. The the number one factor for a good color man, and all of these guys are color men because none of them would be good enough to be a play-by-play announcer, quite honestly, but they're all color men. You need to be interesting. You need to talk about something that people go, hell, that's thought provoking. You know, let me go look that up. Or Morris has none of those skills. No, he has none of those qualities. Right, He's, right. Uh, yes, he lacks everything you really require. But but you know what? He doesn't choke women while he's having sex, though. So that's one that's thing. True. He doesn't do that. So we could say that, that that's right. He doesn't do that. Unlike young Trevor Bauer, who is it has been announced that his uh, I guess his suspension, what do we call it? This is sort of a, extended uh, it, 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 in the police vernacular. He's on desk duty. He's on desk duty because he, he's still getting his salary. That's right. But he's, he's not on pitch. administrative leave. That's right. That's right. And he's not going to pitch again for the Dodgers this season. Yeah. I don't know how long his contract for. I know it's it, it can't be more than another year because he always wanted to sign short contracts. Not just that. The Dodgers could void it anyways. So. Really? Well, yeah, based on the, the behavior clause, I mean, depending on how this all shakes out, I suspect there's something else here we don't know. And the reason is, you know, the Dodgers could win the World Series. They certainly are in the discussion to win the World Series. Bauer is an addition to that as far as what he would do on the baseball field. So the idea that the Dodgers won't touch him, and that's what it looks like to me, it's, it, it doesn't bode well for Mr. Bauer. They, uh, they asked, uh, they asked, the, the Dodgers manager, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on his name, but they asked Davey, the Dodgers, uh, Davey uh, what do you call it? Davey Roberts? Dave Roberts. They asked Dave Roberts if, uh, if he'll ever pitch for the Dodgers again. And he's like, you know, I haven't really thought about that. I don't have a magic ball. I don't have a magic ball. And, right. and I, I would say if that's what they're saying, right, right. he's not going to be back with the Dodgers. And Correct. it's highly unlikely that he would be back with any major league team because nobody's going to want that, you know? And I mean, yeah, he's a really good pitcher, but he's kind of a, a bitch in the clubhouse. There's no doubt. There's nobody does like him. Even Twitter people don't like him. It's, it's just, he's in a weird spot. Um, And so I I don't know how it's all going to shake out. However, I would say one thing, Cincinnati Reds, maybe after he does a redemption tour, that's a guy you should go back after. Because to me, a guy like Bauer should be in that kind of a market, not in not in the fishbowl. Like he would be terrible on the Yankees, and I think it's proven that he's not doing so well on the Dodgers. So who knows? But you might be right. He he may never he may never pitch. He again. never pitch again. All right. So so let's move on to the Cubs, and and it was an emotional week at Wrigley Field as Chris Bryant made his return to to the North Side. Uh, coming with the with the Giants, with the yeah. San Francisco Giants, who were in for a three-game set. And right. it's interesting, by the way, to see how, you know, the Cubs had been playing really well against yeah. Pittsburgh and Cincinnati. Right, right. And the Giants come to town, and the Giants just whacked them around. Yeah, yeah. You know, but, uh, but, but the Cubs did do a very nice sort of video tribute to Bryant. They gave him a scoreboard tile which is, I guess, they give that to everybody. They give one of those <laughs> to everybody, but it had the number 17 on it. And, right. uh, and you know, uh, you could see Bryant tearing up because he's a thoughtful guy. Right. You know, he enjoyed his time here. And who's to say he may not be back, but, uh, but you know, let's assume that he's not back. What would you have to say about Chris Bryant's career as a Cub? 
Well, I mean, it's, it certainly is, it was a launching pad for a Hall of Fame type of career. He was Rookie of the Year, MVP, won a World okay. Series, contributed mightily all along the way. Um, slightly injured player, I would say. You know, he missed some time. Um, but because that Scott Boros is his agent, yeah. I find it very unlikely that the Cubs will do business with Boros. I, you know, I, I wouldn't rule it out. He's not the guy I want back. I want Baez back. And, and I don't think any of them are coming back. That's, that's what I think. I, I kind of agree with you. I don't think they're, you know, I think they're just, they've decided they're just going to go in a different direction. I mean, the one guy, you know, they, they would get rid of Hayward if they could. Yeah, oh, you know? <laughs> they would have gotten rid of him three years ago if they could have. If but, they could. So, so they're stuck with Hayward. And then the only, then they've got Contreras, yeah. you know, who's one of the players from that team who they still feel is productive and can help them in years to come. And then, of course, the, the stalwart of the pitching staff, Kyle Hendricks, who is locked up for a long time, who will be part of that organization for the rest of his life. I would think so. He'll be out there developing pitchers and helping pitchers throw That's that right. up. You know, so, I mean, they've moved on as an organization. There's no question. And I don't think any of those guys will be back. There was a, I, I watched the ceremony on Friday. And so it was very poignant. And, and you're right. Um, Brian, Brian's an emotional guy. That's, you know, all intelligent people are, in my opinion. So his reaction was great. But I thought the most poignant moment was when he came up to the plate and he tapped Contreras with his bat. You never, you never see a hitter do that. That's a way to get yeah. yourself punched. And then, you know, Contreras kind of stood up and kind of gave him a, a left arm uh, hug. There's love between these people, and yeah. they shared something that's akin to, like, you know, uh, military people that, that were in battle, and they've all been, you know, in battle together. And so it would be great to see these guys come back. I just don't think it's going to happen. No, I don't either. And, and you know, I'm, I'm going to miss Bryant. I miss him already. Me too. You know, he helped us win a World Series. That that was, I mean, apart from Argentina winning the World Cup in 1978, <laughs> the Cubs winning the 2016 World Series is probably the most exciting sports moment I've ever experienced. What about the hand of God, man? Hand of God. No, no. 78, it's different because I was I right, know. Man. I was at ground zero, you know, right, I was, right, 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 you know, right. It was, I mean, 86 was great because of Maradona, but it wasn't. No, I know. I know. I'm being facetious, you know, uh, but, uh, but, uh, but also were you aware that another former cub was in town this weekend, made a triumphant return? It wasn't it until I read it on the show sheet. Yeah, I don't yeah. think a lot of people are. But Kyle Schwarber was in town with the Red Sox. And, and here all of us thought he was still with the nationals, but no, he'd been <laughs> traded to the Red Sox, right? He was asked about sort of being a part of that great uh, 2016 team, and then falling short in years to come. And and I liked what he had to say. He said, "We don't have anything to apologize for. You know, we we went out there, we did our best, we tried our hardest. You know, uh, sometimes it doesn't always work out the way you want it to. Baseball is hard. There's so many." moving parts and, and I definitely don't see him coming back. I'll be, I'll be honest with you. There's too many flaws in that guy's game that would make me, well, let's put it this way. It would have to be a cheap purchase that maybe I would, but I would not pay a lot of money for this guy. That's just, he was as hot as anybody in baseball this season for about a two week period. He was unbelievable. Or a month. He had 16 home runs in June. I mean, that's, yeah, that's yeah, Sammy that's Sosa like, right. So that's, that's, that's really, really crazy. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, who knows? He'll have, I think, these moments of excellence, but but then he'll struggle, you know, and, and, and also I think the way the modern game is played, 
a guy, a left-handed slugger like Schwarber, his value is decreased with all the shifts and things like that because he doesn't get the run-of-the-mill base hit to right field right. that he used to get before shifting became so prominent. So let me ask you a quick question. What is your favorite moment of Kyle Schwarber as a Cub? It, it was de- It's the home run he hit against the Cardinals in the playoffs. The one that, that went that, on the, the one that went on the roof, the one that went on the roof, and they put it in a in a, in a plastic case or whatever, and they put you know the one that hit the top of the scoreboard. You, you, that's you, my favorite. You moment. bastard! That's mine too. I, yeah. I, I was hoping you might say something else, but but that just shows you how big that that moment was because that was a huge moment. I did go to a game. I remember him hitting a home run at a regular season game, and I just I was sitting kind of down the right field line, and he just crushed it, and I just watched it, sort of a parabola, just passes right by me and then out into the street and just like, yeah, you know, well, well, he, he, like very few people in the majors had a Babe Ruthian swing. I mean, there were times when when he hit the ball, it was just, it was so fun to see him. What it would have been like to try to block a guy like that because he was a great linebacker. Apparently he was an all world high school football player. All state in Ohio, which is if you're all state in Ohio. Exactly. That's something, you know, so, uh, Best wishes to Kyle. So, so Frank the Tank Schwindel, yeah, king of the Schwindy City, <laughs> and, and as he's named Schwind, as, as he as he escaped National League Player of the Week, and, and he had a week yep. against some terrible teams, but he still had a tremendous <laughs> week, and this right. is big for a career minor leaguer. This is a big deal. He's American. He was National League Rookie of the Month, I think, too. Yeah, we, we talked about this. These players are auditioning for jobs. And so, you know, when I look at this Cubs team, it's like it's, this is an ace-no-face situation. But guys like Wisdom and, and Schwindel and Ortega are going to be guys that are uh, – uh, yeah, They're yeah. going to get long looks, and some of these other players on the team are not. They're going to they're, they're get uh, exit interviews. So um, it, it's – and Schwindel has a joy of playing. You know, when you're a 30-year-old rookie – you better love the game of baseball, man. You've you've ridden on some smelly ass buses. That that I will tell you. The idea that that you've uh, put up with so much of it. It's kind of like Molina, nineteen years of catching. The, the pain that he's had to deal with. It's the same thing for some of these minor leaguers. Their pain is a little bit different. Not only is there physical pain, but there's you know uh, financial pain. These guys are living in poverty, as you've talked about. Some of these minor league systems just don't do a very good job when it comes to the housing and even feeding the players. You know, these guys are eating ramen. I mean, you're trying to make it to the major leagues. Ramen. Are right. you kidding me? That, With all right. that they know about right. nutrition. Correct. These are the assets right. that are right. supposed to be the future of the team. And they're freaking buying ramen. Are you kidding me? So when I see 30, 29-year-old rookies, I know that, like us, they have a love affair with the game of baseball. They're not some 19-year-old Soto uh, phenom that, you know, basically was a golden boy in everything that he ever did. These are guys that have scratched their way. So think about this. What would have happened if this was a normal Cubs season and they didn't call these guys up? Yeah. Think about it. Like we would never know about these players. They would have never had their chance on this stage. And my guess is they never would have been major leaguers. You know. No, you're right. They never would have. And it's 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 just it's nice to see them have some success at the major league level. And hopefully, some of them will be back. I doubt all of them will be. But oh, there's no way. There's, there's no, no way. way. The team. The team that's 
you know, doing uh, much better in Chicago when we talk about Chicago base baseball, the White Sox. I mean, the White Sox are, to me, I see a team that's loading up for the playoffs in, in their um, in their deeds and the things that they do. And I give a lot of credit to um, Father Time over there because yeah, Tony Larusa, yeah, because this is a old man. You know, that's right. This is this is where I think his um, veteran um, experience really comes in handy for um, for the White Sox and. Well, he's he's managing to the situation that they're in, which is yeah. they have a huge lead. They're they're not being challenged by Cleveland. The magic number, I think, is twelve. Something 14? like that. Yeah. There's Something only, like that. There's only three They'll wrap five. it up in a couple of weeks, I would right. assume. And uh, you know, they don't. They're not being challenged by the Indians for the division, so they're not in this kind of pressure situation. The pressure now for the White Sox is get guys ready for a playoff run. And I think they've been very wise in holding Rodon out of a couple of starts and pull it, putting, you know, Lance Lynn on the IL or whatever. And he'll be back, I think, today. Which is, they but, need him back for the But they're going to they're gonna treat these guys with kid gloves. You yeah. know, I think Rodon only pitched five innings the other day. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that's what you're going to see because you're going to need them in the playoffs. You're going to need them when it really, really counts. And, and he's preparing the team for that moment. And, and I got to say, I mean, I've been critical of him, but I have to say he's doing the right thing. Yeah. Well, there, there's a lot of stuff going on. And I think that uh, the, the, the severely criticized if, if, if they don't really advance past the first round in the playoffs, only because yeah, of, of Russo will be criticized. Well, yeah, but I'm not going to be on that bandwagon because I don't, except for some of his bonehead moves at the beginning of the season, I think he's gotten better as the year's gone on in regards to some of the modern things that he must do regarding the shifts. And, and he's done that. I, I saw some shifts from him that we never saw at the beginning of the season. So you got to give him credit for being resilient. Some old guys would never change. He's, he's, you know, he's a lawyer. He's, he's smart enough to, to adapt and, and uh, you know, well, you're talking about an old dog learning new tricks. I don't think the dude ever would have, you know, adapted. So <laughs> no, definitely not. We missed the dude too, by the way. Uh, so, um, did you see this young White Sox fan doing this impression of uh, Craig Kimbrell? The, Dude, the, that was that was awesome. <laughs> so was. they bring Kimbrell in the game, you know, and Kimbrell has that that hanging arm kind of right, thing. He right, does. Right. And so there's this little black kid out, in the, I guess, in the bleachers somewhere or whatever. And he's doing the same thing. He's got his glove and he's just leaning down. He's got his arm out, you know, and that was just and then the cameras caught him. You know, and they were the announcers were talking about it. I just thought it was brilliant. It was a great moment. Everyone was happy except for the racist couple sitting right behind the black family. Oh, that, I didn't see this. Yeah, no. look at that video again, and look at the looks on their faces. And I'm thinking to myself, my God, this is this is a joyous little kid, and this you can't kid. you can't be happy for this little boy imitating Craig Gibral. Which, by the way. Every, when the playoffs start, every opposing team is doing their Craig Kimbrell impression. He's had to live with this for a while now. So um, so it is good to have Carlos Rodon back. I, it, I think that the, the Sox, in order for them, there, there's a couple of little things. Like Lance Lynn has to, has to pitch well, and I think Giolito has to pick his game up as they enter the playoffs. But Carlos could be the one that helps them win the World Series. That's what I think. He's got that kind of no-hit type of – in the big stage, he, yeah. he could cause trouble. For, he really could. He could have that – Or the Houstons of the world. Yes. You know, yes. Otherworldly pitching performance that just he stifles the other team to such a degree that 
And 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 I'll ask you a question. Yeah. If you're Tony Larusa, how do you set up your playoff rotation? Who's your one, two, three, and then four? You know, that's a really good question. I guess you'd have to go with Lance Lynn number yeah. one, and I'd have Giolito number two. Really? Uh, yeah, and I would have uh, Rondon either third or fourth, only because he's that guy in the playoffs. Think about how the rotation turns around. Right. Um, but oftentimes the three-hole is one of the more important ones in a seven-game series. You're saying uh, you'd want to have the better pitcher in the three-hole possibly facing the other team's lesser number three pitcher. What I'm saying is, is that Lance Lynn is the most consistent pitcher, so he would be the, the ace. Um, and he's better than Rondone because Rondone, while he shows flashes of brilliance, they're flashes. Some, sometimes he doesn't pitch like that. So I just think, and then you've got this guy Cease, who you yeah. know is arguably one of the best pitchers. I would hundred miles an hour. I, yeah. I would think that potentially, because remember when they asked Larusa earlier this year, who's the only guy on the team you could keep? He said it's Cease. I think he envisioned Cease as being the number one pitcher on that team, and he's just growing as a pitcher, kind of like what the. Uh, um, the uh, Tigers are doing with Casey Mize, another phenom. They're limiting his innings. They're, you know, they're doing stuff like that. And I think that Cease is coming back from an injury and they're just kind of babying him along. However, he's got dangerous stuff and, and consistently dangerous stuff. And then we know about the bullpen is extraordinary. So, um, you know, uh, if, the, if the Sox, the Sox should be well positioned for the first, first round of that playoffs, they should have, well, it looks like they're they're going to play the Astros, and the Astros are a really good team, and the Astros kind of slapped them around earlier. So they all have a chip on their shoulder when they play them. It'll be an interesting series, and I will be rooting for the White Sox big time because I freaking hate the Astros. I hate the Astros too, and I'll just say I'll be watching the game. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't love either one of these uh, teams because I'm a Tigers fan. Um, and also, by the way, we forgot to talk about this. One last thing about uh, Miguel Cabrera. He hit safely in nine straight at-bats, which is a Tiger all-time record. Guy's wow. 40 years old. Nine straight hits. Over was three that, games. Was that, that wasn't this year, though. No. Yeah, yeah, he did it three, three, eight, three days ago. Wow. Yeah, so anyways, wow. I have to get sidetracked on the Sox, but I do believe that the Tigers are going to challenge the Sox, and it could be as early as mid-next year. Um, so. for that division. What's well, good for baseball? It's good it for the Tigers good. do well. I don't I, I I don't hope so because I want I you know I hope right, so because right. it's good for baseball and you'll be happy and so correct. On. And just like I root for the Reds, I want the Reds to do well too. So so now 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 that Major League Baseball has recognized that the Negro Leagues are are indeed yeah. a major league and, and baseball references over the last year have been sort of incorporating uh, the Negro League stats into the statistical lines of a lot of these players. Um, I was thinking about how this affected some of the Cuban ball players, and immediately I went to um, Minnie Minoso's page, and I looked at how his Negro League stats were added in, and some of the war that was added, and some of the value, and so on and so forth. And then that got me thinking. Uh, you know, well, it, it, I, I truly believe that Minoso belongs in the hall of fame. He should absolutely be in there. He's the Cuban version of Jackie Robinson. Okay. Yeah. Did for Latin American players what Jackie Robinson did for African American players. Yes. But, but now that my attention turns to a player named Jose Abreu who yeah. played 10 years. Right. For the Elefantes. And from age 16. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Starts at age 16, plays 10 years, was a freaking beast. If you look at his numbers, I did. 
Yeah, but that, he's he's been a bigger beast in the major leagues. Actually, his numbers are actually better in the major leagues. So, so that tells you something to, to support your case because he's actually hit better for the Sox than he did when he was on. In, in his power numbers are better, um, and so you're right. He makes a very strong case. I think Abreu's a hall could be be a Hall of Famer on his own right. That you don't need those stats, but but we'll see. We'll see. I mean, he only has like for, but then when you consider his major league career, there's only like 28 wins above replacement. Yeah. You know, you realize that for the 10 years he played in Cuba, he was a career 341 hitter. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Right. I, I, hey, I can't, I can't disagree with it. I'm a, we're both huge fans of this guy. It's something to say that what made him as a human being and as a player was the time that he spent in that league. Yeah. And so yeah. he knows how to, you know, that's why he's the captain. I mean, I, I don't know what else to say, but he's, he's maybe the most valuable White Sox player. But, you know, we'll see how this, I mean, obviously he's still, he's playing this year. He's still right. used to Correct. play. He's got another seven years of great production left. I he think. really does. Seven years is a lot, but, yeah. uh, but, no, but I think, I, I think he's, he, he's a, he's got the type of body um, and, and you know, he's a tough, he's like Molina in the sense that he plays with pain big time. He got hit in the face and he's like, put me back in the game. Put me back who does that? Game. Who does yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And what I love about Pitu is that if you watch him play, there is a purity of intent. Yeah. And that intent is do whatever I can to win this game. That's right. And, and you know, and we're talking about a guy who is a below average defensive first baseman. And he has become as good a defensive first baseman as a right-handed player can be. Yeah, right, right. You know, and so I, I look at him and, and I just, I'm gushing with admiration for this yeah, guy. Yeah, me too. You know? If you've ever felt like the whole world is against you, then you may relate to Antoine Duanel, protagonist of Francois Truffaut's seminal masterpiece, The 400 Blows. It is indeed hard to talk about the great movements of cinema without talking about the French New Wave, just as it is hard to talk about the French New Wave without talking about Francois Truffaut. Harder still to talk about Francois Truffaut without talking about this 1959 game changer. It's time to open the bag of popcorn. Nice and hot and salty. And the movie we chose this week is The 400 Blows. This was actually your selection, Tom. This is a Francois Truffaut film from what year? It's the 1950s. 1959 it was released. 1959. And, you know, again, a black and white film. This is Truffaut's first feature film. Uh, It's semi-autobiographical. And uh, but basically it's about uh, an adolescent, a young boy living in Paris with his mother and his stepfather. And, uh, you know, he's constantly getting into trouble. Uh, Generally, it's not his fault. You know, uh, he gets into trouble at school because he gets caught with a pinup that just sort of was being passed around the room. And when the teacher finally noticed it, uh, it was it happened to be in his hands. He gets punished and, you know, he doesn't really know what to do or how to react to all these things that are happening around him. But he has a love of the city of Paris. He has a love of movies. Um, you know, and uh, I, I guess it's, it's a hard movie to sort of encapsulate. You, you have to kind of see it to understand. 
But what I personally loved about this movie and why I'm so glad you selected and why I'm so glad I've seen it is that, um, you know, very often Paris is depicted in the movies as a bright and colorful place with flowers blooming and colors and this and that. Whereas Truffaut films it in the winter in black and white and Paris looks as bleak as Pittsburgh. You know what I mean? During the height of the steel industry. You know what I mean? And, and, and you see the Eiffel Tower, you see the Momar stairs, and there are all these famous places that he passes by. But it is as bleak. It looks like, like New York City did in Mean Streets to a certain degree. When I watched it again last night, I said, this is grimy noir. Yeah. It's like this is, a, he, he's actually invented a sub, uh, and by the way, he was a huge fan. The thing about Truffaut is his favorite movie was Citizen Kane. And this film reminds me, not in the story at all of Citizen Kane, but from a director's debut. Truffaut was 27 when he made this film, which it's, it's that's, extraordinary. Yeah, that's quite an accomplishment. Extraordinary. And, and this is just a, a, a film, like you said, you do kind of have to see it. And I realize because it's French, a lot of people won't, sadly. Um, but uh, Truffaut... Uh, who died very young, he died of brain cancer, like at age 50, 51 or 52, um, had a career where this particular character in the film, this, this young boy, um, uh, is recurring in, um, in four, I think, four other Truffaut films, the same character as he ages and everything. Um, and so for me, when I first saw this film, I thought it was the greatest rebellion movie I had ever seen at that time. And so it's funny, last night when I watched it, I really wasn't thinking rebellion as much as I was thinking almost from the, the filmmaking craft. Just the thing that I was taken with that young boy is how comfortable he felt in yeah. his surroundings. Yeah. And I know that he was only 14 when this film started. Um, however, uh, it, it, like that it, in New York, they would call that a walk up tenant. That, you know, that 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 apartment building where they lived. Yeah, correct. And it just everything he did inside of that room. And we're talking about Jean-Pierre Liaud, who played Antoine Donnell, the lead, the little boy, you know, getting this house ready for when his mom and the stepdad came home. You know, that showed some experience like he 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 had cut all the corners. I was watching just the little things of Truffaut. You don't have like a 14 year old boy that's just stepping on the stage for the first time. You really had this him worked up into his surrounding before you even started filming, because I thought. And the other thing, too, is that Taskmaster teacher was so similar to oh, ones God. that I had in the 60s. I, I was in, in grammar school just a few years after this boy was. So, you know, he was this film came out the year I was born. So by 66 or 67, I was doing some of the same things that that little boy was doing with the same results. Basically, the difference is my parents were engaged and like, whoa, 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 what is he doing? Whereas I felt like this boy was unwanted. Even though they showed him, the mother showed him points of love. He almost he almost burns the house down because he loves uh, uh, Honoré de Balzac. And 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 there's a scene where he, he, a candle almost burns the house down. What do they do? They take him to, to the movies. Yeah, they take him to the movies. Right. You know. But yeah. but 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 everything about the mother, I felt like she was almost disassociated from her kid, and and and, and it, she just. It reaches a certain point at the end of the story where she almost says, ah, you take him. You had another yeah, you problem. Take him. I can't, yeah. I, I, you take him. Well, we're done with them. I've, I've got my boss to sleep with and my wife. Exactly, exactly. I mean, 
But by the way, uh, she's a wonderful actress. She's, she's still alive. She's 92. Wow. Well, Francois Truffaut knew how to cast women. I'll tell you yes. that. Yes. She was a bombshell. She was absolutely beautiful. So, see, I kept thinking, she, you know, she, you're kind of a tramp. You know, yeah. you know, oh, yeah, big time. You're like, which, I don't know what they don't say which number husband you're on, but that's not the father of this boy. Oh, and, yeah, right, right. You right. know, so I just, I just thought they were kind of selfish, and 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 they were poor, and and they just were kind of. Um, well, they were middle class. They were, they, they, were run, they were rudderless as a family. It just didn't seem like they were hard workers and all that, but it just wasn't. They were spinning their wheels in society, and I just thought this little boy was a victim of that, and. I do think he was getting in trouble, by the way. You said, you know, some of this stuff wasn't his fault. No, he got caught doing bad things. Like stealing that typewriter. and Exactly. Yeah. And, and stupidly returning it. Like, why, why did you take it back? That's the dumbest thing ever. Uh, and, and, but it's just a, what I get from this film is not that it's the greatest story. There's just a texture and a vibe to this film that lingers with you for as long as you watch movies. You'll always think, oh, that's the 400 blows was unique in this or that or whatever. Um, and, and it was the very first French film that used that aspect ratio of panoramic uh, black and white. Very first one ever. It pays a little bit homage uh, to Vertigo in that one scene where the, the kids are flipping around. Yeah, right, which uh, on the rotor. Exactly. The rotor. And I thought, hey, well, hey, you know, the only thing missing is the Hitchcock zoom in on the, uh, uh, on the thing. So it has all of these little things in it. But for me, I think of Citizen Kane when I watch that film, believe it or not. That's funny. I, I, that, I didn't think of Citizen Kane. I'll, I'll, I will tell you that the, uh, the teacher... You know, he doesn't exactly subscribe yeah. to modern educational. Right. I, I was wondering how you were looking at him and how he, you know, ran the classroom. Well, well, I, 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 I sympathize with him because, you know, I've been in a class where there's entirely too many children. Nobody's yeah. paying attention. And right, right. you're trying to teach something and people are misbehaving. And sometimes. So, so let me ask you a stupid question. Do you have students that you just don't like that student? Because it seemed like that oh. teacher just didn't like that kid. <laughs> he decided he didn't like him. Yeah, yeah. He and and there were times. Yeah, I got to tell you, there were students I absolutely um, hated. And there are there's one girl um, in all my years of teaching, sixteen years of teaching. You know, um, if I ever see her again, <laughs> okay, if I ever cross her path again, I'm going to tell her you were a, you were awful in my class. You right, were right, terrible, right, right. man. You made my day just so terrible. Why did you, man? You know, you, you know what my mother would say about someone like that? She should become a school teacher. Right. God, so, yes. I pray <laughs> that she has a job that puts her in front of uncooperative, unruly kids. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and sometimes I feel, Tom, because I wasn't exact, you know, I was sometimes unruly in class. I wasn't a bad or rude kid. But I talked a lot and disrupted the class a lot. And sometimes I felt that when I was in those situations, teaching on the South side with 35 kids who wouldn't do what I said. Yeah. Right. But I was paying a penance. You know what I mean? Sure. sure. Performing a penance. I have a very Catholic way of kind of looking at that. Right. Right. uh, So, you know, I know Ebert has his great movies. This is one of my great movies. This is definitely um, one of my great movies. And I can understand why it may not be yours or others, but for me, it just, it's just beautiful. I won't say it's a great movie. I'll say it's an important movie. And, and if you are somebody who's thinking about becoming a, a you know, a working in film, this is a movie you must see. Correct. correct. You know, um, just for the detail itself. 
But as far as enjoying a movie, I think it's difficult to recommend it to your friend. He's like, hey, yeah. I'm looking for something to watch on Saturday yeah. night. You know exactly. I mean? Well, and I'm thinking your wife would never watch it. Yeah, she would never watch it because it's in subtitles and it's just, it has a kind of subtleness that is going to escape her. You know what I mean? And not to say that she's incapable of understanding subtleness. The horror and moral terror. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that brings us to our selection for next week. And, yeah. and I'm very, very excited about this because it's a movie that you have suggested actually in the past and that I have never seen. And I've always wanted to see because it stars one of my favorite actors of all time, Burt Lancaster. And the movie is The Swimmer. Dude, we've been doing this show for five years. That's your best suggestion ever. Come on. Come on. Seriously? I, I haven't I, even seen I, it. I love it. So until next week, we are the two peas of the podcast. Oh, bang the drum slowly and play the fife lowly. Play the dead march as they carry me along. Put bunches of roses all over my coffin. Roses to deaden the clouds as they fall.